0: Peace, we Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. On today's show, we welcome a senior member of the team at the world's third largest alternatives manager. Tyler J. Rowe is an MD and portfolio manager in the Private Equity Group at JPMorgan Asset Management, which manages over $2.4 trillion of assets on behalf of a diverse group of global institutions and individual investors. Tyler's team, the Private Equity Group, has a 40-year history of investing across private markets, covering the alternative investment spectrum and investing over $42 billion in capital. Tyler helped spearhead a team that invests into funds, co-investments and secondaries across private equity, growth equity and venture fund strategies. Tyler and I had a fascinating conversation about how an industry behemoth allocates capitals across funds and strategies. We discussed what they look for when investing into funds, why middle market private equity is an area they've focused on, the opportunity for secondaries in the current market environment, the differences between a first-time investor and a first-time fund manager, and what a scalable and replicable process really means when it comes to evaluating fund managers. Thanks, Tyler, for coming on the podcast to share your deep expertise in private markets. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Pleasure to be here, Michael. Pleasure to have you on. I think you provide a fascinating perspective into the world of alts from being a private equity fund, but within a larger bank as a business. You're part of a broader platform. You do a lot of things within the fund that you've built within JP Morgan Asset Management. Tell us more about that.
1: First of all, uh, let me provide a bit of background. Um, over the past 19 years, I've had the privilege of being a member of the private equity group at JP Morgan, which was originally formed in the late 1990s. We currently manage about 30 billion on behalf of our clients. And despite Being with the firm for nearly two decades, I I still drag the 23-year average tenure of our senior portfolio managers down. Uh, Some of the the benefits of of having such a a seasoned group of investors is that we've lived through multiple cycles and have uh, developed the pattern recognition that I believe is so critical to identifying the best risk-adjusted return opportunities. We've also built strong networks across the industry during that time and hopefully gained a reputation for consistently allocating to both existing relationships and selectively adding new managers to our platform. As you noted, we employ multiple strategies. Specifically, we make three types of private equity investments primaries, secondaries, and co-investments. Primary commitments are really where we're investing in a newly formed buyout or venture capital fund. Um, That's really a crucial part of our value proposition because they establish mutually beneficial long-term partnerships with top-tier private equity firms, which is really at the heart of everything we do. Secondary investments involve acquiring interest in existing funds or assets, often ones that we already know well through our primary platform and our active relationships with over 250 general partners. Co-investments are another way we leverage our network to identify individual companies in which to invest directly alongside a sponsor. They're really attractive economically because they typically do not include any additional layer of management fees or carried interest, but they also enable us to increase our exposure to some of the best companies in our partners' portfolios. So, to answer your question more directly about the benefits of employing multiple strategies instead of just one, this offers our clients the opportunity to target a strategy that best fits their objectives. For example, client looking for exposure to a really cultivated portfolio if mid-market buyout investments may prefer a co-investment-only portfolio. Whereas someone interested in a diversified set of more mature funds and companies often acquired at a discount uh, might prefer a secondary-focused portfolio. And then, of course, clients looking for broad exposure to our platform, value our ability to tactically allocate capital across all three categories to the opportunities we really believe offer the best risk return characteristics. And that mix is really determined by our view of the market environment and opportunity set, which is hopefully informed by all of our experience across different cycles.
0: It's fascinating to hear the different pieces of the platform that you have and how they all work together. One thing that I've always been interested in, particularly when it comes to platforms that have fund investments or as a fund of funds, but then also do other complementary activities like secondaries or Co invests is how they got started and why they started with a specific strategy or area. What was the genesis of JP Morgan's private equity group? What strategy did you start
1: with and why? That's a great question. The firm actually traces its origins back to ATT's pension plan, where they made p- private equity investments dating back to the early 1980s. And that was when all of the firms uh, that are brand names today were emerging managers because the asset class was, was so new and uh, really developing on those relationships, that team was able to get access to some really interesting co-investment flow and started doing secondary investments, all of which uh, began in the the 80s and continued once that group came over to JP Morgan in 1997. And and we've really built on that legacy since then.
0: What do you think are some of the benefits of having this integrated platform? You mentioned it a little bit, but I'd love to dive into further details so people really understand. There's so much data to be gained by investing into funds, and you can then do so many things from that. What, what are some of the things that gives you real insights into private markets from the platform and the perch that you have?
1: Yeah, I think you hit on it. Our access to underlying data and our network of relationships is really invaluable across everything we do, as is the continuity of our relationship-based portfolio management approach. All of our PMs are really well-versed in all three of the asset types that we do and are able to leverage insights that they have. For example, working on a co-investment alongside sponsor can really help inform our next underwrite of their primary partnership relationship. I had a colleague once tell me observing uh, a manager in a co-investment capacity versus when they're fundraising is, is kind of like looking at the animals in the zoo versus in the wild. So you really get that perspective uh, that is hard to replicate uh, without that. What do you mean by that? It's interesting when you're in our position, oftentimes we're brought into a potential co-investment opportunity, even when the manager is early early in their diligence process. Because of the deep relationships that we have and our ability to move at scale, we in some cases are co-underwriting an opportunity alongside them. And that means we are even signing an equity commitment letter and helping sellers and intermediaries gain confidence that the sponsor can speak for the full check. And knowing that, that JP Morgan is one of the large investors behind that opportunity, I think can be really helpful. Part of that is we get to see how the sponsor is really underwriting that opportunity through their third party work, through all of the iterations of their model and their IC deck. And then after they close the investment, assuming it goes forward, we often have the opportunity to get periodic updates with both the sponsor and the management team, sometimes in a capacity as an observer on the board of directors. And really that is a a deeper layer of knowledge and interaction than you typically see in a more prepared fundraising construct.
0: You're bringing up something that's been a trend and feature of private equity, particularly over the last 10 years, as LPs have become more active and involved, which is the desire to do co-invest. That could be because, as you mentioned earlier, fee related, you want to blend down your your total fee load into a partnership with a manager. It may be because you want to be able to invest directly and the benefits that come with that or have single asset exposure. How have you thought about the evolution of private equity as an industry
1: in the context of maybe how you've evolved as a firm as well. That's a fascinating point because we've certainly seen a number of cycles as the industry has matured and been given access co-investments has been a critical part of that. It's actually one of the areas that I think is most exciting right now. We're seeing an increase in our co-investment deal flow over the past year, which seems counterintuitive given the overall private equity transaction volume is down at least 25% versus last year. I think there are a couple of factors driving that increase. And one is the simple math of buyout investments in a higher rate environment, which means equity has become a larger component of the capital structure. You know, buyout firms therefore look to their LPs to help fill that gap with co-invest equity and, and we're well positioned to move quickly and at scale during a time when perhaps some LPs are more capital constrained. As I mentioned, in some cases, we're even co underwriting a transaction alongside a sponsor. And uh, I think GPs are increasingly comfortable um, with LPs in that role. Uh, whereas back when I originally began in the business, it was more common to see a, a syndicate of uh, even buyout firms participating rather than a large LP co invests group
0: have you shrunk the number of fund commitments that you have because you're more active on the co-invest side as a result and tried to call down your relationships as an LP or have you kept a large number of GP relationships so that you can get access to as many co-invests as possible
1: yeah I think increasingly it's the latter we've certainly maintained the core relationships that we've had for many years and continue to expand and add new ones as part of our platform I think that's been one of the benefits of continuing to grow. Of course, we're always evaluating each time a new fund comes to market, whether or not uh, that merits staying on our platform or perhaps making room for another group. But it's certainly not a zero sum, even um, as we've increased our co-investment activity, in part because we've raised dedicated capital on the co-investment side.
0: Interesting. So you've now evolved the platform to where you have distinct funds and you're raising capital for specific strategies. Is there a reason from an LP or distribution perspective as to why you've decided to bifurcate strategies based on what LPs
1: want? I really believe that it's been valuable for us to offer LPs increasingly uh, more choice in the types of investments that they may want to complement their existing portfolio. Some are looking for a one-stop shop and combining all three of those activities. Others perhaps are, are targeting some co-investment exposure or secondaries. or a mix therein. And being able to offer that to all of our clients, I think, has been well-received. Uh, and we're certainly not alone in doing so. And how much
0: of the co-invest strategy is really driven by the fund relationships that you have versus the co-invest team just going and sourcing things directly from companies or companies calling J.P. Morgan directly?
1: It it is a good question, and it's certainly a mix. depends on the year uh, and the season. The vast majority of our co-invest activity are alongside groups that we're either uh, current investors in or have been in the past or are considering working with them. I think that is really valuable to have that context and an existing relationship, but we're certainly open to other opportunities. We've been sourcing an increasing number of co-investment opportunities from other GPs across our network. And different transaction types. It it used to be where you were sort of limited to syndication once a GP has signed up a deal and is ready to close and maybe has a small piece remaining for LPs. Now we're really creative and proactive in our sourcing efforts. We see over 300 co-investment opportunities across the board in different transaction types. For example, add-on acquisitions have become an increasingly popular way for companies, especially to operate in fragmented industries, to add, scale, reduce the purchase multiple, and diversify the business. The add-ons actually account for nearly 8 out of 10 buyout transactions in the U.S. And what that means is sometimes our partners will develop such a robust add-on acquisition pipeline that they require more equity than they originally reserved. that's where we can come in post-closing and make what we call a midlife co-investment to really turbocharge an acquisition program. And that can be highly accretive to returns for all investors.
0: It's fascinating to think about the point that you enter when it comes to being a co-investor. And it sounds like that may develop organically. It sounds like it may be determined at the onset of a relationship with a fund that you've invested in as well. Yeah, I would love to understand a bit more about how you often interact with the GPs who you work with when thinking about co-invest, how do you determine the rules of engagement when it comes to working with the GP, but also then thinking about getting access to their co-invest?
1: We certainly make sure that every GP with whom we interact is you know, very aware of our co-investment capabilities, both as existing primary investors or if they're just looking for additional capital to support a transaction, both at the onset of that deal or later if it's a, a midlife co-investment providing additional equity. But we try to to be formulaic or overbearing in requiring any sort of formal requirements around co-invest or ratios or uh, number of deals that we see. What we really pride ourselves on is moving quickly and providing transparent uh, feedback to investors because we're saying no 90% of the time looking at over 300 co-investment deals a year and want to make sure that GPs know we're not going to be a a slow maybe. Uh, No one wants that, but we'll give you direct and frequent feedback.
0: So I'd love to break down the different aspects of your platform and understand what you look for from an investment perspective in each. Let's start with the primary investments, which in your case, you consider primaries to be not investing in companies, but investing into funds, into GPs. What do you look for in a GP that makes you excited and gets you out of bed to invest in them?
1: Excellent question. Manager selection really is part art and part science. There's obviously a lot of quantitative analysis that goes into it, but the art is the human element of trying to assess a group of people to whom you'll be allocating capital that will take at least 10 years to deploy and harvest. So we spend a lot of time with managers, not just when they're fundraising, but regularly speaking with them about what's going on with their team and portfolio. Our co-investment in secondary activities actually also help inform our views of these firms as we get to drill down a layer deeper to see how they underwrite and execute. And then when deciding which managers to back, we evaluate them across a number of dimensions that can loosely be boiled down to three categories, people, process, and performance. As I mentioned, this really is a people business at the end of the day. We're looking to invest with the best. So. Having relevant experience and a strong track record are table stakes, honestly. What really stands out are things like the ability to develop a differentiated strategy and value proposition that resonates with a variety of constituents and allows you to attract and retain a team with complementary skill sets. Empowering this team with the resources to succeed and creating clear functional responsibilities and alignment of interest is another critical ingredient. That's why we spend time with multiple layers of an organization. We complete reference calls with portfolio company executives and others in our network to get a better sense for what it's really like to work with the people with whom we'll be entrusting our clients' capital. Process is the second part. It's an overlooked area of diligence. Uh, I've seen a number of promising emerging managers really struggle as their business grows because they don't develop the scalable and replicable processes for sourcing, managing, and exiting investments. In contrast, I've been really impressed by firms that continually seek to improve and are often willing to invest heavily in their systems and add resources to ensure they're maximizing the value they bring to their portfolio companies and investors. The final P, of course, is performance. That's why we're all here investing in private equity in the first place. You know, We analyze a manager's track record on both an absolute and relative basis compared to their peers and public markets. We also break down sources of value creation to determine how much of the returns were driven by more repeatable factors, such as growth and cash flow generation versus multiple expansion during a time of rising valuations. Evaluating unrealized investments in a portfolio is actually another underrated element of our diligence process. Here, we're tapping into the skills that we honed through co-investing and secondary underwriting to assess the quality of the manager's portfolio and really whether the valuations are appropriate or perhaps inflated to show well during a fundraise process end result of all that, we write these lengthy investment memos that probably make a good cure for insomnia, but also provide a a thorough and candid assessment of the firm and our confidence in their ability to generate top quartile performance going forward. It's
0: interesting you talk about the co-invest and secondary piece as part of that. Are there ever times when you're starting a relationship with a manager through the co-invest or the secondary buckets, and that's how you get to learn about them and you see what their portfolio looks like, and then from there you end up allocating to them as an LP into their fund because you got to know them through another process and got to see how they make investments, all of that.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's one of the best ways that we've gotten to you know, bring new partnerships onto our platform and I think mutually beneficial in in many cases. We've also had scenarios where we've done it at the same time. We we typically refer to that as a stapled transaction where perhaps we're coming into a fund towards the end of their fundraise when there might be some embedded value in the portfolio because especially in this market, it often takes 12 to 18 months to raise a fund and we therefore might get a late look at co-investing alongside them and making a primary commitment to their fund. And there you're really de-risking the situation It's compared to coming into a blind pool partnership at the very early part of their fundraise. And oftentimes, you'll have a more attractive risk-return profile from that staple. And those have turned out to be great long-term investments for our platform.
0: You mentioned something else in there, talking about people, process, and performance. Obviously, one and two lead to three. But in bucket one around people, you talked about... What makes them different. I often think that really investing into funds can be distilled down into one thing, which is understanding what a fund manager's edge is. Now, how one defines edge, how one figures out what the fund manager's edge is, is a multifaceted process. But How do you look for edge
1: in a fund manager? It's really an excellent question uh, because it can be boiled down into so many different levels. I've seen some groups whose edge is clearly just the depth of their expertise and networks in a particular sector. We often view sector specialists as being best positioned to execute. And some firms have multi-sector specialists, and and that can certainly work too. But in other firms i have honestly seen the quality of their operating advisor network be one of the key differentiators elements, especially if they've really thoughtfully organized that group by functional area and developed an operating system, if you will, that uh, enables the firm to clearly track uh, and monitor performance and make sweeping changes if necessary. Those are the types of firms that, that we honestly see continue to succeed. And then there's some softer you know, characteristics. For example, I, I really, the, the more I am in this business, the more I value objectivity and humility. Those are often key characteristics. It's Every firm's going to go through adversity, both in their portfolio and their organization. It's really how you face those challenges that impact your ability to succeed over the long term. Individuals who are clear-eyed and transparent with their investors, their colleagues, and their management teams, they really engender the confidence and trust that's so important in this relationship-oriented industry.
0: Are there any questions that you ask when you're thinking about allocating to a fund that sheds light on a lot of these things that you're saying
1: you know, there's no specific questions we try to be open to not having a preset formula or 100-page DD makes things really difficult on the managers because, again, like we're looking for folks where we can spend a lot of time over multiple months, quarters, years, and develop that relationship with multiple layers in the organization, with people that they work with, and oftentimes in a co-investment or secondary context to really get a fulsome picture. Whereas I think it's just really challenging if you're coming in for a one-hour kind of canned pitch meeting to ask that aha question.
0: On that point, What have been some of the best decisions you've made in terms of allocating to fund managers and why?
1: I think some of the best or at least most rewarding from my perspective is when we can commit capital to an emerging manager that perhaps wasn't so obvious they would be successful and continue to back them for many funds. Yeah, to me that's really fascinating to see how those organizations that start small and remember that you were there for them to help get them into business and that pays dividends in terms of being on the advisory board, seeing first look And co-investments or perhaps secondary investments being really there to shape some of the terms in their partnership agreement and provide guidance to the extent they need it. Those have been some of the most rewarding from my perspective.
0: What do you think are some of the things that stand out about emerging managers when you meet them? And I'm sure you've seen so many now that you can tell the difference between ones who, okay, we really have to allocate to this fund manager versus... Mm, not sure yet, maybe let's check in the next fund because they just have a
1: little more growing to do. Some of the things that are most clear uh, in retrospect are the firms that obviously are not first-time investors, even if they're raising their first-time fund. Uh, So they've got experience uh, that's referenceable and attributable uh, from their prior firms, Um, and they've honed a strategy and developed at least a core team to help execute on that strategy. And the ones that are most differentiated to me are ones that that really have a right to win in a very crowded environment. Uh, So I think about one of the sectors that that we've leaned into over the past five years or so is perhaps something less obvious, but really focused on providing essential services such as maintaining, operating, and and repairing our our nation's aging infrastructure. I think there's some secular growth trends in that market uh, that previously private equity wasn't as uh, focused on. So there's been some great managers who have uh, really emerged in that area and in a way that has been really interesting to me and I think less correlated to the broader market. And so having that strategy that's a little less trafficked and coming in and clearly articulating that really resonated with me when we made an initial commitment to a manager in that space.
0: How do you think about that comment in the context of broader portfolio construction? Is that driven the way that you've thought about constructing a portfolio? Is that just a piece of it or one strategy that you may want to employ? How do you think about things kind of zooming out more holistically?
1: I think a lot about portfolio construction uh, on a variety of, of vectors, including geography, size managers, selection, and of course, industry, which which is, I think, a a large part of of your question. And we certainly are never going to be trying to to fill a a bucket. So if we go through a whole fun cycle and we don't see someone who's really amazing at pharmaceutical services, that's okay. We're not going to force anything. But we certainly do come in with a a prepared mind and and an overall sense for where there could be some gaps in our portfolio or perhaps some excess exposure that we could diversify away from if provided the right opportunities.
0: So I want to get to broader portfolio construction as well. I know you have a number of different funds. You also have launched a fund more recently the private markets fund for the wealth channel, which is $25,000 minimums, I believe, and gives people exposure to your entire platform across primaries, secondaries, and co invests. How have you thought about portfolio construction with the different funds that you have and strategies? And then thinking about that relating to the different LP constituents that you have. And obviously, private markets fund is probably for the high net worth channel relative to the institutional channel. So how you've thought about your different fund strategies in the context of the LPs that you're also working with?
1: That's a key element for how we construct portfolios, because it really needs to focus on the end result that's most appropriate for that client and for that structure. And so with a private markets fund, like you mentioned, there's some interesting elements of that structure that lend itself more towards secondaries and co-investments rather than as much of an emphasis on primary commitments, in part because the capital is all called upfront as opposed to a typical drawdown fund. Um, and th- those you know, funds offer the ability to provide you know, immediate diversification uh, into an existing portfolio and and, secondaries in particular uh, provide a a very attractive way to do that because we can look at uh, an already developed portfolio and and acquire interests um, that perhaps give us diversification to European private equity on the buyout side or small and mid-market US, which has really been our focus since inception. Another product could be more focused on a broader range, both globally and I don't know, by investment type. Happy to go down either of those paths that might be helpful.
0: Yeah. First, I'd love to hit on what you just mentioned, which is the lower middle market focus. That's been a big part of the heritage of J.P. Morgan's private equity group. You focused on mid-market buyout funds. Why mid-market over large buyout.
1: That's funny, often when I first meet someone, they assume because we're part of a large financial institution that we would just naturally gravitate towards large private equity firms. And certainly nothing wrong with that, but we've actually always focused on small and mid-market. Not to say we don't selectively invest in successful firms that have migrated up over time, especially if they've demonstrated the ability to continue generating strong returns and are raising what we believe is an appropriate amount of capital relative to the opportunity set that they're pursuing. However, the vast majority of our investments are alongside firms and in companies that occupy the smaller end of the private equity universe, which we believe offers the best risk-return profile for a variety of reasons. First and foremost is simple supply and demand. About 70% of U.S. buyout deal volume over the past 15 years have been in transactions with enterprise values of less than $1 billion. Contrast that to the supply of capital, nearly half of all dry powder currently available for buyout investments is held by firms with fund sizes over $5 billion. So This dynamic really has multiple implications that I believe are favorable for investors at the smaller end. One is there's less competition for smaller deals. That translates, in general, to lower purchase multiples. In fact, the average entry multiple for sub-billion-dollar deals since 2010 is 10.4 times EBITDA compared that to 12.2 times for deals with enterprise values between one and two and a half billion, and then 13.3 times for those above 2.5 billion. On that point... How
0: much have you found that performance in the lower middle market, particularly with the funds that you've worked with, has been driven by multiple expansion versus other areas of drivers of value?
1: This is a point we always focus on, especially when we're doing primary diligence on a new fund, is breaking down the sources of value creation. How much was driven by growth in profitability, cash flow generation versus multiple expansion? What we found varies over time, but what we focus on hopefully are the more controllable and repeatable sources of value creation, such as operational improvement, which in my view is really easier to generate at the smaller end of the market, where over half of all buyouts are founder or family-owned companies that had no previous institutional backing, they've often not been managed to optimize shareholder value. The private equity managers with whom we work really bring the resources and the knowledge to professionalize these businesses and invest for growth both organically and through acquisitions. So they subsequently create larger, more diversified and well-run organizations that can be sold up market to the larger PE firms who have all that dry powder or to strategics perhaps looking for assets that can help them grow and diversify.
0: Can you get away? with relying on multiple expansion more in the lower middle market. Maybe that's not the only way in which you want to create value. Totally hear you and agree that cash flow generation, improving operational processes, maybe bringing in management team, all of those things are huge drivers of value creation. If you're buying at lower multiples and you're building a bigger platform and then can sell it on to a larger fund at at larger size and scale, that can be a way to continue making money. H- how have you thought about that, seeing data from over the 30 plus years that the fund has been working with a number of lower market funds? All
1: things being equal, I think you're right. That could certainly work. But we, to be clear, never underwrite any multiple expansion and any of the investments that we make, even though I think there's rationale to say, just by sure size, that you do some add on acquisitions, you get some growth, maybe you can sell it up market. That playbook is interesting even in a market where exits are very hard to come by, our distributions are actually in our buyout portfolio are up this year. I think the market is down kind of 25 percentage. And I do attribute it to to the math here. It's it's really even in a tough uh, market. It's small and and mid-market companies. They appeal to a broader set of buyers. They're also less reliant on leverage to generate returns. Uh, So if the interest rates are elevated like they are now, or perhaps credit's harder to come by, you can still get transactions done and and generate exits for investors. How is
0: the lower middle market buyout space evolved over time as private equity as an industry growing its overall AUM, presumably more funds in the lower middle market, and certainly larger funds getting larger as well. How has that space evolved? And maybe talk a little bit about how that competitive landscape's evolved at the lower middle market as private equity's grown.
1: People often used to talk about proprietary deal flow and and it was yeah legitimate pure proprietary now i think there's a softer angle of uh, yes, we carved this out of a process, but it was a limited process. Or we had some dialogue with the, the sellers in advance of them engaging with some sort of advisor. So certainly it has been increased competition and private equity firms have had to, to up their game uh, if you're not making as much you know, money on the buy, so to speak. And that's where, again, I look at the ability to you know, generate value and bring uh, resources to the table as being a key differentiating Point for lower mid-market buyout firms.
0: That brings me to the the natural next question, which is you're part of a broader organization, JP Morgan, that works and serves so many different people, businesses, et cetera. How does a firm like yours leverage or interact with the broader organization that you have? Because you can work with Companies funds in so many different ways.
1: So I'm clearly biased, but J.P. Morgan is a great organization. It has tremendous resources and really values people. So the global alternatives business, where our private equity group sits, and is just a small part of the broader firm, manages over 200 billion in assets. It's a key growth area within J.P.M. and we leverage the, the firm in a variety of ways, including systems and resources such as technology, legal, compliance, and distribution. We also have access to economists and analysts who are experts in a wide range range of industries and asset classes, which really helps inform our diligence process. Interestingly, J.P. Morgan also happens to be a large customer in certain industries. Technology, for example, the firm spends around $15 billion annually. That provides a great lens through which to view trends in the enterprise software market, for example.
0: How do you think about the platform that you have at J.P. Morgan relative to some of your fund of funds competitors where you may both be competing for an allocation in a fund or even a co-investor secondary. What are the the things that are generally most interesting to the funds when it comes to the broader platform and breadth and depth that you have?
1: I can't speak to that as much from their perspective. What I try to emphasize to people is in addition to being part of the largest financial institution, you get to be partners with a group that has the tenure and, and resources that we do that hopefully is valued by the market. We're, you're going to be the same people that you've worked with historically. So it's not just a, a stable firm, but a stable team and group. And hopefully we can bring to bear all aspects of the team and firm that are relevant to that particular opportunity.
0: The other piece that I can't help but think about is the intersection of wealth and alts is one of the trends that's really driving this space forward. JP Morgan obviously has asset management arm, also has a private wealth arm. How much are you leveraging the private wealth arm and the client base that you have within private wealth as potential LPs in your own fund, but then also helping your funds grow or the different funds that you have you're raising from the wealth channel or productizing for them? How do you think about That interaction as well, not just with the GPs that you work with, but even other LPs that you work with.
1: Yes, certainly something that we've always prioritized. The mantra around here has always been make great investments and provide exceptional service to our clients. That includes all constituents that that touch that client relationship, including our brethren on the private wealth side, also the different folks we work with who are at RIAs. We've been active in trying to reach out to the investor community and really understand what they're looking for, and are excited that for the first time in our 26-year history here at J.P. Morgan, we've got that opportunity to tap into the private wealth channel in a way we haven't before, really doing the same types of investments that have been successful for our institutional clients for so long.
0: What has made you decide to tap into the wealth channel and start to work with RIAs now versus...
1: Prior, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that, like you and a number of folks in the industry, observing the the trends and alternatives has been eye opening for us. Uh, it's the one area of the market that perhaps is, has been under allocated to the asset class, and now has increasingly a, a larger. Array of choices from really high quality managers. Uh, we spent the better part of a year researching uh, the ability to, to offer this in a, in a credible way and tapped into uh, the experience of, of JP Morgan more broadly. Uh, the firm manages about $1.2 trillion in in 40 act capital and has 38 years of experience in, in doing so. That enabled us to work with uh, a number of colleagues in, in really structuring, providing the infrastructure and the governance framework in addition to portfolio construction to bring this product to market. It's one of the things that, that we're most excited about going forward.
0: So walk me through a bit more about this new product that you've offered, the private markets fund, the features of it. It's a registered vehicle. So that's a little bit different, but there's probably a reason why you created a product with this kind of structure for the types of investors that you want to work with. We'd love to hear how you went through this process and brought this product to market.
1: As I mentioned over a year ago, Ban, looking into the category of semi-liquid funds that are registered under the 40 Act, um, these funds are referred to often as tender funds because they offer the potential for quarterly liquidity for clients up to a certain amount predicated on board approval. And to be clear, I'm speaking broadly about the category rather than specifically about the JP Morgan private markets fund. And really the benefits of the structure are it offers immediate access to a diversified portfolio of private market investments, in a way that really reduces some of the friction of the traditional drawdown funds. For example, the investor qualification requirements and initial minimum investment amounts are lower. All of the investors' capital is called up front. So you don't have to worry about periodic capital calls and cash flow modeling. You get a 1099 tax report instead of a K1, and as mentioned, you've the potential for quarterly liquidity, although that's not guaranteed, and we certainly recommend a long-term approach to the asset class generally.
0: What's the rationale for creating a product with this type of structure? We all know that private markets, in some senses, illiquidity may be a feature, not a bug, And yet, understand and appreciate why some LPs may want or have a need for liquidity as well. But why create a product with this structure relative to a more traditional, illiquid private equity structure for either direct co-invest secondaries or investments into funds
1: to be clear I think that we're looking to offer you know, choices to investors based on their needs and objectives right? and I think this product and structure makes a lot of sense for individual investors who qualify in addition to certain institutions who may find some of the features I just mentioned to be you know, particularly attractive when it comes to forecasting cash flows especially as we've seen in the current market environment where exits are in some cases we were looking at uh, across the industry uh, a two to one or more ratio of capital calls to distributions. And I think that's been feeding some of what we're seeing as a particularly attractive time to be making secondary investments, given some of the LPs need for liquidity. And this structure offers that potential for folks who might need it to fill other needs, but it also offers ability to compound, I think, in a very attractive way uh, with some interesting investments.
0: You bring up an interesting point, which is that secondaries are obviously having their time in the sun right now. There's clear reasons why that we both understand and know, but why? create a more liquid product when secondaries themselves, in theory, should reduce the J-curve? So you could have a a more traditional fund structure with a secondaries fund that would potentially serve some of the purpose while certainly not having quarterly liquidity like a semi-liquid or registered fund may. But what was the thought process between putting secondary investments into a more liquid structure or registered vehicle versus just having a secondaries fund that Was structured in a way that an accredited investor could invest at a $25,000 minimum and get access to secondary. Sure, they might have to wait three to five years, but that's also quicker than the seven to 10 years that you may exhibit with a private equity fund investment or an investment directly into a private equity fund where that J curve is going to be pretty dramatic relative to a secondary.
1: That's a fair question and certainly not mutually exclusive. I think for certain investors who might value that longer time horizon and deployment horizon, it, it makes sense to be in a more traditional drawdown fund, uh, which we offer. In in other scenarios, I think one of the attractive parts about this more liquid fund opportunity is the ability to buy into an existing portfolio and receive kind of instant benefits of of diversification, especially in the way that we're constructing it, hopefully, which is a nice blend of secondaries and co-investments, and in a way that's also continuing to take in additional capital with monthly subscriptions to make new investments. So it's not one that you're kind of stale in the sense, that those investments just are going to wind down. We're hoping this will be an evergreen product that continues to allocate to new deals.
0: What do you make of this explosion of interest in the secondary space? Obviously, more capital is going into the space. Generally, as more capital goes into a space, it becomes harder to generate excess returns. Like like you said earlier in the conversation, part of the reason why the middle market is so attractive is because there's less capital chasing so many more opportunities. So there's opportunity to generate returns by virtue of being in a less crowded market Whereas right now, it feels like secondaries are increasingly crowded market, yet there's certainly plenty of of opportunity as well. How do you think about the secondary opportunity in the context of a lot more capital coming into that space?
1: It's certainly true. and Like the private equity market overall, there's been some concentration of capital among the largest secondary firms, which by necessity means they focus on larger portfolios that tend to be priced higher and often employ some level of leverage, which increases the risk profile and cost of capital. Large secondary players are less likely to bid on the smaller portfolios of mid-market funds, which is where we focus exclusively. It's also worth noting that these mid-market GPs who have the right to approve transfers of interest in their funds are also more inclined to work with a group like ours that are consistent allocators to mid-market funds on a primary basis. These dynamics allow us to face less competition for smaller portfolios that really don't move the needle for the large secondary players and to carve out assets that we know well that are part of broader transactions. A typical secondary will have at least three buyers and the intermediaries and sellers are looking to optimize for the transaction that creates the most value for them and, and closes. And we're able to participate alongside you know larger and mid-sized secondary buyers. So I, I think there's certainly plenty of room for both ends of the spectrum in this market.
0: I think you're hitting on a really interesting trend, which is in the secondary space, the ability to transact on smaller chunks, you work with smaller funds, so smaller size deals in the secondary space, there's a real opportunity there. What do you think is going to unfold in the secondary space, and where do you think it's going to be the most interesting place to play within secondaries?
1: The evolution in this market has been fascinating over the past several years, uh, because you've seen the the market grow generally, which is all, always great to see, in part driven by the, the growth in fundraising overall. But in a given year, we're seeing reliably $100 billion in uh, plus in transaction value, which is certainly a, a large size compared to what we've seen historically in the past. In addition, there's been an evolution in the types of secondary investments, advent of GP-led transactions really over the past four to five years, and doubling and tripling in in total transaction value has been really interesting to see. And these are transactions where the private equity sponsor themselves is, is taking the lead in helping to identify an asset or group of assets that they want to continue to own, and offering their LPs the opportunity to sell. And new buyers, such as ourselves, potentially could come in and recapitalize that give the sponsor additional time and unfunded capital to pursue add-on acquisitions and other growth opportunities while allowing existing LPs to either roll or sell into that entity. And given the lack of liquidity overall in the market, I think that's been an attractive development, certainly not without its own share of of issues uh, that we can go into. But uh, having additional opportunities uh, for uh, participants in the secondary market, I think will continue to be uh, a a key part of, of what we're seeing going forward.
0: What excites you most about the current market in private equity?
1: I, th- I think the the private equity market being so dynamic and our ability to play uh, across a, a few different vectors as discussed already in – Down markets or up markets, we have the opportunity um, in the pattern recognition, hopefully, to identify really interesting risk return opportunities, whether that be secondaries trading at a discount, co-investments at a more reasonable valuations like we've been seeing as as the market is really adapted to perhaps a new normal in terms of interest rate and leverage availability. Or on the primary side, having access to a broader group of high-performing general partners who are raising reasonable amounts of capital and and value long-term investors. I think there's a number of ways to win in this market and long term quite bullish on the overall industry. Notwithstanding it, there certainly are challenges to be noted.
0: It'll be interesting to see what kind of unfolds. What do you think if you have to make a prediction? In what twenty twenty four holds for the private markets landscape? What would that be?
1: You know, I'm n- notoriously bad at, at making predictions. Because I think if you'd asked me this time last year, I would have thought high percentage chance we're going into a recession, and I probably wouldn't be alone. A number of macroeconomists, economists, uh, at least in our firm, uh, had to agree with that potential uh, element. The fact that, that we could be looking at a, at a soft landing is quite interesting. I think there's a lot of pent up demand in terms of dry powder in the private equity industry that will is is looking to get deployed and evaluating the bid ask spread that. We're seeing, which I think has been keeping a lid on transaction volumes more generally, as that gap you know narrows and we get a bit more you know visibility on the near to medium term economic outlook, and especially in an election cycle, it would be really fascinating to see the implications for transaction volumes and exits in 2024.
0: I think that's a great lead into the last question that I, I ask every guest on this podcast, which is, from a personal perspective, what is your favorite or most interesting? alternative investment.
1: Several come to mind. Uh, I want to focus on one that's already been realized and omit the names to preserve confidentiality, but I really enjoy talking about this deal because it highlights the importance of being proactive and sourcing unique opportunities and also staying close to your core relationships. So during the early stages of the COVID pandemic in the spring of 2020, one of the funds that I'm on the advisory board of had an investment in a a veterinary company that was performing well, but had been temporarily impacted by some of the government-enforced shutdowns. They also had a a robust pipeline of accretive add-on acquisition opportunities. The net of it is they needed capital beyond what the sponsor could provide from their fund. We worked closely with a few other investors in the GP to create a co-investment vehicle to support the company's next phase of growth which allowed them to aggressively expand at a time when many other players were sidelined. That certainly took a bit of courage at the time, but resulted in a very successful exit to a larger PE firm less than a year later, in fact, which was a tremendous outcome for our investors. I also Love dogs. Shout out to our girls, Magnolia and Bubble. Uh, So it was a pleasure to support a business that was focused on pet care at a time when so many folks were adopting new pets.
0: You're hitting on, I think, a fascinating trend and it shows how the world of private markets really relates to so much of our lives. I think Blackstone and Apollo did this in their holiday videos where they tried to connect private markets to what's going on every day and what we're doing. So much opportunity in private markets if we look to where consumers are buying things, how they're spending their time, who they're spending it with. I think that's a fascinating lens into why private markets really is relevant to all of us.
1: Well, thank you. And I'm glad you brought up the Blackstone video because I thought that's now the second best theme song in the alternatives landscape, second only to your intro for this podcast. So I'm I'm ready for the School's mainstream (laughs) holiday video. I'm here for it.
0: All right. Well, next year, we're going to have a holiday video. We're going to have to after inspiration like that. Maybe people like you will make an appearance in it. Would love that. Awesome. Tyler, this has been a fascinating conversation. Pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for sharing such a broad overview of private markets with such an incredible history and perch that you all have built at J.P. Morgan. So congrats on what you've built. Thanks so much for coming on the
1: podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at at Michael Sidgemore and at goesalt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day.
1: We're going-